Hi, I'm Kieran Cook, and welcome to At Source Podcast, a place where natural health and well-being are at the forefront of the conversation. Gain useful insights direct from the source from doctors, industry experts, wellness advocates, and everything in between. This is a place for busy people who want to get to the core of health and wellness with information about the latest health advances and trends. In this series, we talk with and learn from inspiring leaders from all walks of life, touching on important topics that will help answer some of the key questions about natural health, well-being, fitness, and all things direct from the source. Dr. Rosie Bosworth is a future foods advisor, communications specialist, and entrepreneur passionate about crafting stories and co-creating progressive, health-driven, scalable, and sustainable communities and food systems fit for a growing world. She has a PhD in environmental innovation and sustainable technology development, and her passion lies in facilitating mentally healthier communities, mind consciousness, and neuroscience. Her purpose in life is to help better the lives of others. Well, thanks for joining us, Rosie. It is great to have you here today on the Ad Source podcast powered by Nature Bee. And of course, we do know each other a little bit back in a past life where I'm pleased to say I uh, contributed a little bit to your educational pathway when you were a student at the Senior College of New Zealand about 20 years ago. So that was a long time ago. So it is so nice to see your face again after such a long time. Oh, that's great. It's great to see your face and probably the, my frontal lobe's probably slightly more developed than it was 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, like like we exchanged earlier, some colourful stories and um, it's always the colourful ones that go on to do great things, Rosie. So um, without further ado, let's kick off our conversation. I first wanted to start by asking you about your PhD in Environmental Innovation and Sustainable Technology Development. Um, what does it involve? It sounds uh, quite a complex um, piece of research that you undertook. And I'm just interested to know a little bit more about what you researched um, during your time, I believe, in the Netherlands. Yeah, well, partially in the Netherlands. It was back in sort of from 2008 to 2012. Um, and I had originally done um, some postgraduate research in um, sustainable technology development. I had a um, professor at the time who was really interested in how technologies could change in industries in terms of flipping industries on their heads, pr um, providing consumers or societies with the same outcomes, but using technologies to deliver these in radically different ways, radically more efficient ways, and in the context that we were looking at it, um, as well, um, delivering more environment, uh, de delivering them in <clears throat> much more environmentally benign ways. And um, mm -hmm. that, that eventually, at the time I was a bit younger, I was still very much as sort of um, you know, pro-environmentalist, pro-sustainability, um, wanted to help with the planet. And that ended up um, morphing into a PhD where we looked at environmental innovation and how innovation and technology could, as I mentioned before, actually change industrial paradigms. For example, when we look at the combustion car engine or um, energy sector, how that's shifted from from coal um, and now we've got solar technology and all sorts of technologies enabling solar energy and the electric car. Um, so we're seeing this shift, the same outcomes for the consumers, energy or transportation, but using technologies to deliver these and deliver these in much better ways. Um, a lot of that research was a bit too ahead for New Zealand at the time. So I was conned over to the University of Maastricht, which is in Holland, um, 
without really leading the edge in sustainability um, and environmental innovation. And my professor there, um, Dr. Rene Kemp, he was he and his um, lab were also looking at um, food. And I've always been really, really into food. And the topics of the days and the key word of that sort of era, this is back in 2008, 2009, was um, alternative proteins. And, uh, and to me, that really meant nothing. I was like, what, what, the, what is alternative protein? What is substitute protein? Um, uh, you know, what does that mean? For, or, you know, for, coming from New Zealand where protein just means milk from a cow, beef and lamb. So, and... We started to look at in those systems um, how new forms of technology were able to develop proteins, largely animal proteins outside of animals. Um, also looking at plant-based proteins too, um, pea proteins, soy proteins, or or plant protein isolates that could produce same quality or nutritional quality um, proteins outside of the animal too, but weren't animal proteins. And that really um, sparked my appetite for how the food system's changing, how technologies are actually going to potentially turn agriculture, you know, on its head. Um, and what does that mean? My interest was, well, coming from New Zealand, what does that mean for New Zealand when that's the backbone of our economy, that's the fabric of our society? And if we took away agriculture right now, um, particularly during COVID, um, which has just been the main earner for us, um, that that has really dire implications for us as a country going forward. So that really starts, so we were starting to look at the time though, just all sorts of ways that technology and innovation created system shifts in industries and, and how that would eventually be enacted into real day life and in society. Um, a bit geeky at the time and I ended up having to do a lot of my work overseas or research overseas afterwards just because it was a bit too ahead for New Zealand ahead, yeah. of that area. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And that's not uncommon, is it? I mean, we, we do seem to be in New Zealand, you know, quite a bit behind Australia and I'd imagine quite a bit behind um, Europe as well yeah, in light, terms light of, sort of future forward thinking, right? Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. that we're not behind, yeah. but we, we very much are, so. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, do you think, do you think, because obviously we're kind of innovative too of what we do in New Zealand, but... Do you think it, it is because of just pure geography being so far away from so much, just so much water around us that it's kind of kept us sort of a little bit polarised? Or do you think it's just that, you know, we, we don't have resources or uh, we're just not future forward enough as a nation in our thinking? Um, I think it's a mixture of both. I think there's a, one, a geographical limitation to the way we innovate. Um, we're so far removed. We don't see what's happening overseas um, until a good few years behind the rest of the, the front runners. And um, at, at that point, we're going to always be um, fast followers or slow followers. Um, and we're just so remote here. And COVID's really uh, cast a spotlight on just how remote we are and how behind we are on so many different me um, metrics. And so you combine that ge geography, the geographical barrier, and then you mix that with the fact that um, food is such a key part of our history. And it's always been dairy, wool, sheep, beef. Um, so to get your head around when you live in a country where that is such a thriving part of your ecosystem, yeah. how that could actually not be the future um, it's a cultural kind of psyche barrier that we're facing here. No, that will never happen to us. 
we produce the best in the world. Um, so therefore, we will be insulated from any changes. So therefore, let's not innovate. And mm. um, and that's that's probably the bulk of the challenge is that we have this mindset that it's not going to happen to us because what we do is exceptional. So therefore, we're safe. Yeah. Mm. I think you've explained that really well. And I, I did did take a good read of your article uh, in Spinoff last year, Never Let a Good Crisis Go to Waste, How Our Food Sector Can Save New Zealand's Economy. And so you do sort of tip that model of surety on its head and you kind of pose the what-ifs and so on. Um, and I think it's a really good read. If anybody can get their hands on that, it's, it's a really good read about how we're sort of uniquely positioned to capitalise on the future of food, but you know, there's a lot of work to be done uh, to be able to position ourselves in that way. Um, of course, and we'll get into this a bit later on, um, we are up against a mighty short timeline to affect some of these changes. And that's the piece that I find really interesting because as we have this wave of consciousness around, you know, our planet and um, the, you know, the fact we've probably only got a decade to turn the ship around, possibly even only as little as eight years to turn the ship around. Uh, yet, you know, we don't we don't see, you know, lab meat uh, on the shelves in supermarkets and costs would be somewhat prohibitive for the average Kiwi or the average consumer to sort of dip in and enjoy. Just say you get them over the line, right? I mean, that that's another conversation again. But say you get them over the line and you're countering the fact that you know, around the world, the, 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 drive, the drive for meat is growing, it's not reducing. There does seem to be some, some pretty huge forces um, at play to really, I guess, see the sort of outcomes um, that you're talking about. From um, just, I know, I know that you've been working, you know, for, I think it's the last 14 years as a consultant at, you know, at Future Foods, where you are an alternative protein consultant. I'm just interested in what a typical day would look like for you. Um, well, it, it does vary. It depends on the nature of the client. It depends if I'm working in-house with a startup or um, at the moment I'm doing a lot of work um, with the New Zealand's food and fibre sector and how to help ready them for the future and bring in insights around all this technological and market change that's happening um, globally and how that may yeah. impact on our food and mm -hmm. fibre sector. So really um, at the moment what my, what a typical day would look like would be Looking at what the global trends are doing, um, yes. keeping quite a close tabs on the the reduction in costs that these technologies are achieving, um, where those where those I guess uh, points that Nexus point is where that potential technology may come in and maybe undercut or reach price parity with how New Zealand um, the cost of how New Zealand produces meat, and then what what, what does that mean for mm. us and what the timeframes are, but also okay, so if there is some sort of food disruption happening or a bit of a shake-up of the sector going forward, where, where is our new role in that? So that's actually sort of taking my head off my hat, sort of my thinking off alternative proteins and looking at what we do right now and, and thinking, yeah. okay, New Zealand has always been able to focus on our comparative advantage and that's been able to produce good food because we have lots of water, we've got lots of land and we've got a really temperate, um, mm. variable microclimate. But... Yeah. Um, if food, if, say, for example, the demand for animal products goes down, how else, from a competitive advantage, can we leverage our skills, all of the insights in the university, the food sector, um, uh, the skills of the farmer, the farmer, farmer, the farming community, actually think what other ways can we produce food that will be 
much more competitive um, in the long run for New Zealand and provide consumers with far more beneficial value-added outcomes, for example, personalised mm-hmm. foods or ones with a much more acute health focus on them. Yeah. And sort of what yeah, would that yeah. food New Zealand Inc. offering look like? Yeah. Yeah. So do you think we're the Detroit of agriculture? <laughs> oh, I did say that a couple of <laughs> Because I'm, I'm detecting some hope there in the way that you've just answered the last question. Um, if you <laughs> asked me that... Um, a couple of years ago, I would have I would have said yes. Um, I probably can't say yes anymore um, for various reasons. But one one re- one of the reasons is, is that if we we do have an outstanding uh, ability to correct, grow um, outstanding food, so we don't necessarily need to be the Detroit of agriculture. We could in fact still be the leaders in certain niche categories of food if we reposition the value offerings. And mm. um, that's quite exciting because the consumer focus on well-being now is stronger than it's ever been, and no one's harnessing that really around the world. We could be the well-being providers of, you know, food providers of well-being, and that's a that's a real niche slash mass market opportunity for New Zealand to get behind and really command premiums and some exceptional value um, to the sector. Yeah. So I do uh, recall you mentioning that Sanford was one of those standout companies that are innovating and, and you know, adding uh, value-add products, right? Yeah, well, I mean, that was, I think that's some time ago we were talking about how um, they were shifting away from, say, commodity um, yeah. marine products um, and seafood products to value-add bioactives and nutraceuticals. And that's certainly the case of opportunity throughout the sector. We can look at how all of our plants, mm. our mm. indigenous, our um, exotic plants and crops, our seafood, our aquaculture, um, anything from allergies and all of that kind of stuff can actually not be looked at from a commodity lens, but actually from a bioactive or real micronutrient lens to to you, to sell these products as wellness products, not food, mm. food for the mass. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, really, really interesting. And so would these projects typically run over years? Because I would have imagined they'd be quite long range. Yeah, yeah. no, no, of course. Yeah. And, you know, for, if you're going to be adding a health benefit to food food categories, you're obviously going to need to do some studies or clinical studies R&D. behind those yeah. R&D. So they're not, it's not as simple as growing a crop and then selling it on the market. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really lifting the lid and finding out what those um, needs need states or benefits mm. are for the consumer. Yeah. Mm. And also, you know, identifying where the problem is, right? What, yeah. What's the problem? And, and how do we actually craft a solution to this very present problem? Totally. And I think half of the challenge for New Zealanders at the moment is that we are creamier in commodity prices. Um, food prices are going up around the world. Um, COVID um, drive those up, giving us a steady um, price on commodities. And now what's happening with um, the Russia-Ukraine crisis is that we're seeing food prices go up again. And so commodity prices are, are actually going up. But that's actually just, that's not, not going to be a long-term um, strategy to rest on for the sector because what will happen when the tide goes out is that not only will commodity prices go down, but all the other alternative food or, te- or protein technologies would have accelerated to the point that they're much further along in the market, that they are then at some point are going to come in and create viable competition for commodities. Yeah, disrupt that. Disrupt that. Uh, yeah, that mainstream chain. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. How far away, though, do you think that really is? For Let's, let's just pick off New Zealand as a conversation. <laughs> just let's start with New Zealand. 
Oh, look, I think, okay, if you compare, say for, let, let's look at dairy, um, the dairy sector, um, or say beef and lamb. Um, I think New Zealand's beef and lamb and dairy sectors are, are more cushioned than, say, other meat or dairy producing nations like the United States or potentially um, Europe, mainly because we're grass, um, we're pasture raised, grass fed, and we do have the ability to differentiate our product a bit more immediately than those other countries. But the technologies are moving so fast that the prices for alternative proteins was dropping so drastically that it won't take a, 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 the, these curves are dropping exponentially in cost, and we're seeing that time and time again. It's not just an isolated company doing it, yeah. uh, achieving this. They're now achieving it through dairy. It's it's happening with chicken. It's happening with mince. All sorts of uh, leading countries: Israel, Singapore, obviously in the United States, and. Um, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be surprised. We've already, um, like, we've already got small quantities of of mic- microbially produced dairy products hitting the market now. Um, they're partnering mm-hmm. up with big, large food conglomerates, with like Archer Daniels, Midlands, who can help them scale these technologies a lot faster yeah. than they can on their own. So I don't. I think ten years. Um, New Zealanders or the farming community may think it's pie in the sky, but it didn't take very long for the consumer to adopt the iPhone once that came on market and we had scales um, of economy and all sorts um, started to happen and, and it will, will not be different with food production. So 10 years maybe, but, you know, that, that, that gives us a bit of time to really reposition away from commodity sectors and really um, regenerative farming techniques that, mm. that traditional consumers want if they're still looking for real animal-produced products. Um, and for those very high income niche consumer markets. But, uh, you know, it could happen. It could happen sooner than that. But of course, you have to look at what happens on the global market. Um, you've got regulatory hurdles. Um, only Singapore's the only market, the country that's regulated it right now. And then you have to look at things like war, like global conflicts. They do, they do somewhat stall it. But then once, once that sort of finishes, it accelerates and there's been no drop. In fact, there's only been an exponential increase in investment into the space as well, which only which only facilitates that technological development. Progress. Yeah, yeah. progress even yeah. faster. Yeah, that's right. Um, that's really interesting. Of course, in your TED Talk, you talk about uh, food being emotional and you liken it to the emotions and uh, euphoria of love, which I thought was an interesting comparison. And then you go on to prick the balloon, you pop the balloon and you say, well, those, those, those feelings aren't real, really. Those love feelings aren't real. <laughs> They're synthetic. Um, and so I'm just sort of, I'm just sort of interested because um, everything that you're saying right now makes sense in terms of the level of investment, um, the way it works, the world moves forward and you talk about technology and the way the adoption of technology has been you know, speedy and, and continues to be so. Uh, but food is emotional and that's where I'm getting to here. Do you actually think, given that in general the world's you know population's growing, and and is particularly in the developing countries, the desire to eat meat as we know it and as we knew it um, is continuing to grow at a rapid pace? So how does this kind of work? Because you've got those emotional drivers, those cavemen legacy drivers that just seem very difficult to sort of um, squash or flatten that curve, um, kind of offset, paralleled with all this interesting innovation that's sort of running. Alongside, yeah, yeah. Look, um, I know it is a bit of a, a kind of a dichotomy of look, tech's going to come in and replace that, but the the primal limbic brain 
it's probably going to just yeah. want a big chicken drumstick. And look, this morning, all I want to do was a bloody chicken drumstick. I roasted chicken last night. So, you know, I'm like, <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not Actually, a vegan. Um, yeah. But um, I, like, I track food technologies and I do like to reduce the impact that I, of mm. the foods I eat. But I certainly am no vegan um, and I would be a fraud to say I was. Um, so I think what will happen is two things. Is one, at the moment, there will always be, well, I guess, with the Gen X, the older millennials, the Gen Xs and the boomers will have this historical desire um, uh, around food and what that means to them. And a lot of that's at the row store, sitting around and eating big portions of animal proteins and, and the, the kind of the communal, cultural, um, social... The barbecue, the kiwi barbecue. The barbecue. Yeah. Um, and they, they, won't, they, they may be less um, open to these new technologies. Um, and so they may see them as viable options, but not ones that they're actually wanting to to select if, um, if there's still the real deal, so to speak, um, available to them to eat. But I, what, I, what I would assume, I can't say I'm right, is that we're already seeing a huge shift to flexitarianism, veganism, and Meat-free Mondays. The quote-unquote yeah, plant-based yeah. diet, especially in the younger millennials and the Gen Zs. And what what will happen then is when these technologies, food technologies, come to market that can produce that, that substitute product in a way that has those same experiential factors of traditional meats, for example, can we produce a burger that sizzles and smells like a burger, but it's made from plant, it smells all bloody, and it gets it wets your taste buds. And and can we produce chunks of or you know drumsticks of chicken that you know make you really feel like you're eating a nice texturally, you know, mm. meaty piece of chicken? That's going to be less of a barrier once those technologies are able to to tackle the experience of simulate that. Yeah, yeah, to, to, yeah. yeah. Um, and and then at that point, when these costs of these new technologies are so much cheaper for the consumer to buy. One, they'll think, well, why, why the hell would I buy an animal product that's been slaughtered? Goodness knows how they were created um, for 10 times the price when I could actually buy an alternative version, which in the future they'll be able to personalize to their own nutritional requirements and still have a experiential outcome similar to the previous option. Why would I even consider um, eating those products? And, and then you combine that with all this new hyperbolic head, headlines around meat is the new coal, all that kind of stuff. There's a lot of baggage that comes with traditional meat that the younger generation is starting to, I guess, absorb much more than the older generation. Yeah. Definitely. I'd agree with that. And I think, but again, I think that is going to take time, uh, but I think you're definitely onto something. Yeah. Well, no. it, it's, this isn't going to be an overnight shift and it's not going to be a, it won't be one or the other. It'll largely be a slow encroaching of alternative proteins into the traditional yep. food space, and it may not be, and the shift may not be total either. So yeah. it's going to be, you know, all sorts of. It's not a tidal wave. No, what you're saying is this is this is a slow, steady, uh, strategic kind of enterprise that will, you know, eventually make a dent. That's what you're really um, saying. Yeah, maybe, but there may be a tidal wave in certain food categories. For example, if you look at milk, um, the percentage of New Zealand's, well, the percentage of New Zealand's milk or no dairy products 
evapor- the vast the vast portion proportion of them are evaporated to milk solids, and then mm. sold offshore as mm. commodity um, milk powders. And that's a problem for New Zealand, and it's also a problem for adoption and um, for a slowing of adoption of new technologies because milk powders go uh, ubiquitous. They go into your your chocolate bars, they go into your crackers, they go into your panadols, they go into yeah. anything packaged. It's through the line, yeah. And nobody turns around. Um, and, and the food companies that are buying milk solids certainly aren't buying them from New Zealand because they're from New Zealand. They're buying them on price and they're buying them on reliability of supply. If you get something else that comes in that provides them with a local option that's cheaper, that's still probably more reliable in terms of supply because we can fully control that. You can't control climatic conditions related to yes. animal agriculture. Then New Zealand's huge portion of our exports that have what that were once going um, sold as food solids for food for crappy food ingredients. Let's you know, let's be honest, they're not all done all crappy, mm. but most of them are just fast food or um, mm. consumer packaged packaged goods. Um, that's, that will be a tidal wave of change. And that's where the dairy sector needs to be prepared for because um, they, they then have to think, okay, well, we've got a small percentage of our market drinking part premium liquid milk or cheese. We need to really up our ante on how we survive in this in a much shrinking market. Yeah. Yeah. So you're saying it's potentially, the dairy industry is potentially a sunset industry the way that it's currently working. You know, so how how are dairy um, industry? How's the dairy industry responding to that? Like I'm thinking of Fonterra, they must be really busy in the back room, innovating and coming up with all kinds of alternatives. Yeah, I mean, of course they um, they see they see what's happening. Um, like any big large corporate, they they probably would like to think they've they've got more t- time um, to to sort of rearrange uh, their strategy going forward, but. Um, they've certainly started to make the shift towards um, looking at where they can up the ante on their um, the quality yeah. of their foods, but also they they've acquired not acquired that they have interests in alternative protein technology companies. One of them is Motif. They produce synthetic um, animal proteins out of microbes, so they are slowly starting to hedge their bets. The issue with Fonterra is that it's a cooperative, not a company, not mm. a company company. So. When you're, when you're trying to tell your farmers, we need to shift away from what you're doing to something else. Well, it's, it's a real horrible ask for farmers. And, is, you yeah. know, and understandably, they're going to get defensive. Um, like, you've mm. just told us to do this, and now you're telling us that our, our potential market share may shrink. Well, what the hell do we do? So it's, it's, a, it's a precarious position for farmers, and I certainly wouldn't want to be in their shoes. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, farmers are sort of like New Zealand's heartland, right? It's almost like, you know, you can you can look at the CO2 emissions across the transport category and you can, you know, look at the introduction of hybrids and, and e-cars and, and go, you know, we'll make some changes here. I mean, whether or not the infrastructure is in place to achieve these lofty targets, I don't know. Uh, that's a separate conversation. Yeah. But I mean, it is it is of interest to me that agriculture sort of sits at around 21% of our CO2 emissions, you know, and transport only 16% of the transport sector is utes and vans, you know. A lot of that's due to methane and, and they are developing very quickly some methane inhibiting technologies for the dairy sector mm. and the farming sector and, and ways that a new new varietals of grass that they can they can eat or, or new technologies that prevent 
that same extent of ethane being emitted from from the cow. But um, but again, is that is that yesterday's technology when the market's shifting to a new, entirely new form of technology altogether? Um, I mean, it's they're going to have to yeah. do that regardless. Um, just for social license to operate in the future. That is something they will have to do as a yes. hygiene yes. factor. It certainly won't be able to be used as um, a point of difference. Um, yeah. So you're, are you talking also about an FEP, right? Um, you know, that the farms need to have an FEP by 2025, uh, farming environmental practice. I mean, because I, I realise that sustainability is a sort of a rather subjective term and what you might deem as sustainable would be different from maybe what a New Zealand farmer might deem as sustainable. Yeah. So uh, what what you're saying here, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that some of these constructs that are getting sort of rolled out via the New Zealand government, yeah. um, you're saying that they are... They're needed, but they're not necessarily going to solve the problems and then this yeah, alternative exactly. protein industry is moving at such a pace that it's going to just supersede all of that. Yeah, 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 correct. And um, they're certainly needed and farms are certainly doing a bloody good job at keeping up with these absolutely incessant changes and requirements that are asked of them. Um, and it must mm. be bloody tiring being a farmer um, and heartbreaking at times knowing, thinking you've done everything you can, you still have to make changes. Um, and certainly considering we're the best we are amongst the best farmers in the world. So what what more can we bloody well do kind of thing, you know? But um Yeah. But I think I think the good news for farmers is that we do have incredible land in New Zealand, uh, food producing land and we've shown we can shift away. I think I think uh, a point to note about farmers is that they are entrepreneurial. And they will go where the market goes. So, look, we wouldn't have shifted to dairy if there wasn't a huge market shift to dairy or, or um, a market benefit for us. Um, and so we, we will be able to sort of suss out where those new opportunities are with cropping, with other land uses, maybe with medicinal crops and herbs, um, other mm. forms of bioactives, um, and see where else, um, aside from regenerative farming, that that we can profitably play in. And I'm sure the the fast, the forward-thinking ones will go, oh, shit, you know, I don't have to I don't have to farm dairy cows to be a farmer. I can farm whatever the hell I like. Um and and we will see we will see those who are prepared to change, you know, adopt those. Yeah, I'm thinking about that as you're saying it, and I'm thinking about the intergenerational um legacy of farming, right? That it was it's usually something that's within the family. And I'm also thinking about mental health for farmers. Yeah, which is something that's been really topical over the last few years, and noting that you know farmers have the highest rates of suicide, and that industry bodies are working really hard to support farmers. So, yeah. on one hand, I hear what you're saying about farmers being adaptive, but on the other hand, I would say that farmers, um, you know, do have it tough, and they do have it, it is an incredibly isolating uh, lifestyle. And I could only imagine with all these changes imminent just how mental health is going to become probably more of an issue rather than less, right? I agree. They shoulder the burden of um, yeah. the economy in New Zealanders. Um, I think mm. if there's anyone, a vocation in New Zealand that, you know, deserves a bit of sympathy, uh, deserves a lot of sympathy and respect is the farming community um, mm. because because the burden they bear is huge. So I do mm. I do hope that the what's coming ahead is, you know, they're able to adjust to that. 
and and I think yeah. that's important is that we keep uh, they keep abreast and we we keep them informed around what's coming ahead, not to scare them, but to 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 show them the way of where opportunities could be in this new world. Yeah. And I think that's probably where, you know, industry and industry like Dairy NZ would come into play, right? That, that'd be sort of a voice piece, if you like, for some of that. You'd work. hope so. Yeah. 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 Um, I do remember many years ago producing some content uh, for, so I guess, more progressive farmers who were sort of embracing technology. And this was sort of about eight years ago. And, you know, the reality was that many farmers didn't have internet and, to actually onboard tools and apps and processes that were going to streamline farming efficiencies um, was actually really difficult for the average farmer oh, yeah. because many, especially in the South Island, many many of the farmers just didn't have um, access to the internet, let alone be an app-driven functioning farm. So, uh, yeah, I think there's still lots of catch-up. I um, just wanted to go back to your comment about the, the millennials, the Gen Zs, um, and the sort of the... Uh, the impact here just taking a turn into media, social media, you know, how has social media sort of impacted our relationship with food? Um, I'm just interested in your thoughts around this. Um, but to be honest, I don't, uh, look, I, I, I use social media. I, I'm not, I'm not a young millennial. I'm not, as it Jen said, to know just the extent of how they, how much they use social media. I know that it's certainly more um, more of a presence in their life and lots of people like to take photos of food. What I would say, though, from my experience is that social media has had a much more um, influential impact on getting out alternative views of food, of, mm. um, I guess, facilitating food e exposés of, say, the dairy industry, the meat industry in the States, um, all those documentaries, sea spiracy, cow spiracy, milk in New Zealand. Social media has been a good platform for them, an effective platform to, to um, I guess, push out alternative views of the impacts of food and what you eat um, out into there into into the younger younger generations. Mm. Um, mm. They certainly absorb it more than the, the older generation. Um, I don't know too much how I could say about um, how social media is impacted around, you know behavior except for the fact that um there's a lot of celebrities endorsing plant-based movements um you know plant-based diet clean eating all that kind of stuff and you see that a lot on, on on social media um and that would be i think um a question you may have wanted to raise was sort of some of the challenges around online food i can't remember what the question was but it was actually around um you're one of the biggest um problems with food is or food consumption is orthorexia, you know, where people are just so obsessed with one oh, particular yeah. diet, so obsessed with what they're eating, um, and and um, and really becoming quite neurotic around the foods that they're eating, especially that younger generation. And um and that's a that's a big issue. And I think social media um is problematic and that it exacerbates that. Yeah. Yeah, and I think in some respects it's almost sanitised it too. Yeah. Like it's almost okay. Yeah. You know, if you you want to be freakishly in control to that sort of degree, it's actually okay. It, it's, it just sort of packages it in a way where it seems to be digestible. Yeah, yeah. organised is really narcissistic, unhealthy behaviour. And so that, that are some of the problems I have with social media and food. Yeah. Mm. 
that's that's a great a great point that you raise, and and I agree. So I was interested in your connections uh, with Silicon Valley because obviously you're a Kiwi and you're here. Um, with, with COVID, you'd be a little bit more grounded here. Yeah. But I, I am in, I am interested in just your sort of exchange with Silicon Valley. I'm not sure if that was in the United States. I know that Israel have a Silicon Valley as well. Yeah, it was in the um, States, yeah. It was in the States, yeah. So, I mean, in terms of your findings in, in Silicon Valley around attitudes towards food and maybe with Americans, we could talk about that more broadly. Do you find that they're similar or they do differ between countries? Uh, Definitely. Like, look, Silicon Valley is a broad term, you know, it's, it's a pocket of Northern California called the the Bay Area and it's San Francisco, mm. all the tech sector areas, Marin County, sort of all the area around the San Francisco Bay Bridges. And um, it's obviously the epicenter, a lot of technological innovation. And so they obviously, the consumers there, not only food, well, not only sort of computing innovation, but food innovation, food delivery innovation, food supply chain mm. innovation, all sorts. So what you see there is probably not an accurate uh, representation of consumer behaviour, particularly as it, as you compare it to New Zealand, because they are at the front. They're out there t- testing these new technologies. I remember Netflix mm. was just a normal thing eight years ago there. I don't know anyone who didn't have Netflix back then. New Zealanders wouldn't even know what Netflix was, the term, um, and same with ride-sharing. And um, so obviously alternative approaching, so just a common day term over in Silicon Valley. They would certainly be the sort of leading edge in adopting plant-based proteins, fermented proteins, you know, for lack of a better word, a better term, lab meat. They, they of course, are going to be leading edge in their viewpoints, particularly beneficial viewpoints around that. Um, but America is a big place. Um, you know, drive on 200 miles inland. I was going to say, yeah, go somewhere else. Like, I won't name any cities, but yeah. Totally, you're in a different country. So I would just, I would certainly say that Silicon Valley is not representative of states in general. And um, and it's definitely a, a small microcosm of... Um, of behavioural... An American psyche, yeah. Yeah, but but what we see with the Silicon Valley is that it starts in Silicon Valley and it gently ripples into consumer behaviours globally. So what mm. starts in Silicon Valley, it might not reach the rest of the world quickly, but it will probably reach the rest of the world at some point in time. So that's what... Providing they can keep continue to raise capital yeah. and, and and keep their shareholders well fed. Totally, totally. And yeah. make, sure, make sure that yeah. the valuations are, you know, multi-billion yeah. dollars. Skyrocketing, Skyrocketing valuations. valuations. Yeah, and, yeah, and a lot of people yeah. are actually moving out of Silicon Valley uh, for the same reason people don't want to live in Auckland anymore, rising house prices, mm. cost of living, all that sort of stuff. So you're starting to see innovation epicenters sort of move. Um, mm. But, yeah, so I would say that the consumer behaviour in the States... We were eating impossible burgers over there six years ago. New Zealand's only getting them on count- countdown today. And they, you know, reached out restaurants, what, last year or whatever. So we, we can't compare. Yeah, we're, we're too totally... What, so what's, uh, what's an impossible burger like? Um, impossible burger, just look, my, my, pa- my partner, he is an avid meat eater. And he will, we will go out to Burger Burger in the weekend and eat it. It's a plant-based burger. And he, and he will just willfully request the impossible burger. It's a combination of all sorts of plant proteins. And then it's put together, um, let's say coconut oil for the fat, but also it, what they've put, they've used um, biotech to create a molecule that's found in meat that makes it 
drip with blood. It's red and bloody. It smells like blood. But when you cook it, it tastes all caramelly and yummy. And you don't get mm. that out of the normal um, kind of lentil burger. And so mm. that's what the Impossible Burger has in it. And it, and it really, um, they've had scientists to test the sort of sensory experience of how this heme hits the nostrils, hits all sorts of parts in the mouth. And it makes a plant-based burger somewhat indistinguishable from a real meat burger. And, and that's going to continue, they're going to continue iterating that until it, until in blind tastings, no one knows the difference. And, um, yeah. and so it's pretty much a, a burger that's not made out of meat, but you wouldn't know the difference. But not disappointing. I'm not hearing any disappointment. No, it's not. No. There are other ones on the market that people may find disappointing. The Beyond Burger is a bit, a bit more average because the technological Techno- mm. technology in it isn't so advanced, but um, mm. yeah, look, I mean, it's, it's coming, it's just releasing into countdowns at, actually at the moment. So, you know, if anyone's interested in cooking a Impossible Burger, you can soon buy them. So um, definitely be interested to see what the, the listener thinks. Get some feedback it. on it. Um, yeah, I was going to ask you, you know, about food and tech and food science, you know, do you think it's causing more harm than good? Now I've done a bit of reading on the matter and there is sort of a split sort of argument around, uh, you know, lab meat, clean meat, whatever you want to call it, just missing some of the key micronutrients that, say, traditional meat avenues provide. Yeah. Um, and that things could go wrong, you know, in, in growing cells, and it may may end up being sort of a negative rather than a positive, and just, just that it's not yet conclusive that, Plant-based meats are, in fact, going to give you better health and wellness. No, improved, improved health and wellness. I, and look, and I agree to that. The jury's out as to how um, how these are going to perform nutritionally in the long run. Mm. Um, however, you you probably need to consider it in the context of what kind of meat is the average consumer eating right now? Are they eating premium New Zealand grass-fed meat? Um, and yeah. if we're looking at burgers, no, they're probably not. They're probably eating a processed burger made from factory farm meat in the States or Europe or whatever um, that's got a whole bunch of other fillers and wheat and all sorts of other stabilizers yeah. and flavors and whatnot. So you probably have to compare it to what it's replacing at the moment. A lot of these companies are aiming to replace, replace mainstream meat cuts, which are pre-processed. Yes. But... Um, when it comes to what the nutritional value of these fruit precision fermented or these cultured meats or cultivated meats are going to be providing, look, they're working on look, the macronutrients is there, but it's really the micronutrients. And, mm. you know, that, that's important. Um, we know that minerals and vitamins that are in the amino acid profile of meat mm. is something that is really hard to match. And, um, yes. and, so we're going to have to really focus on that and how, how when it's, 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 it's different because you can achieve some of that through the meat itself, but a lot of it's through what these animals are eating and how they're mm. raised. So it may be a matter of, of some novel supplementation of these meats to ensure that they still deliver those um, high nutritional outcomes. But, you know, it's, it's still hard to know just how nutritious they will they will ultimately be when they come to market. Though I would say that one of the one of the sort of 
stage gates to hit market would be that those nutritional and the micronutrient content of that profiles, profiles yeah. um, do somewhat match. Um, and look, the bar's pretty low if you look at the average, you know, processed yeah. sausage or Cheerio or hamburger patty, patty, but it's when we're comparing those lovely whole cuts of meat that, that mm. there's got to be more challenges. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What do you think is going to happen to the food chain over time? Oh, um, I think there'll be a lot less, but more, uh, uh, much, a lot less animals, much more um, high quality grown, sort of regeneratively farmed animals that will be mm. a, um, high, very, very high quality and raised to high ethical standards. I think um, there'll be a huge shift to cropping and plants. I think there'll be a lot of what we call distributed um, farming in the cities where we can grow these alternative proteins inside megacities themselves. Mm. And I think the food chain will largely go back to plants, margin, mm. a small a small portion animals, and um, it'll look vastly different. Um, so it, it, does that, do, what happens, how do you kind of deal with that process? Because all I can see is just a ton of animals where the use-by dates come up a hell of a lot earlier than the farmer planned. Oh, well, look, I think the average, well, how, what's the average age of a cow you slaughter? You know, four years or five years, four, I don't know. Yeah. So, so look, their lifespans won't, won't outlast this technological revolution. No. Um, so there will be... A, and it'll be an easement, right? It's not like genocide of cows or, no, you know, it's not going to be... Not, it is quick no, acting, no, slaughterhouse no, experience. No, I would certainly no, no, hope no. not. So, um, no, I don't, mm. see, I don't see that happening, no. So just what about sensitive topics like, uh, you know, lab meats being fit for halal and kosher as an example? I mean, that's interesting because some countries, I think, is it, I'm not sure if it's Israel, have said that it's kosher. Um, it, that, that's, a, that's a really grey area because is it the fact that it's raised from, an, uh, that there was slaughter or that it's still an animal meat? And when you look at plant-based bread, Protein's completely different. But if we're looking at... Exactly. Yeah, cultivated meats or those lab-grown meats, they are... Te- in ve- and in vitro. In vitro, that technically, little, if you yeah. look at the microscope, that's a piece of animal um, DNA. Yes. Yes. And so are you eating um, Are you eating an animal? And I guess then you'd have to go down to the foundations upon which those standards were created or the nature of those. Were they created for the death of, where the death of the animal was what was the bad thing? Or was it the fact that um, it couldn't be an animal product? If it was just that they were anti-slaughter. Slaughter. Yeah, mm. if it's anti-slaughter, then these are certainly could be con- considered those. But it's it's hard to know. Um, again, mm. there's still there's so much debate going on around that, around the term, you know, whether or not these are vegan or real animal products. And also the terminology, you know, they're even going to be allowed by the regulators to be called meat. Uh, but they do, well, they have to be called, you know, full meaty like substitute, you know, or some word. Um, yeah. yeah. But who knows? Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, if Manuka honey can have a revisit, so can, um, so can our traditional meat, I guess. Who owns that word? And you know, who owns the IP and what does meat mean and what does who owns manuka honey and what does manuka actually mean. Yeah. So all these things come up for debate, right, and and repositioning as we progress and grow. Um, okay, interesting. So uh, I wanted to also have a chat to, did you see that story on John Foote 
on the project, the World War II veteran who swore that his long life was put down to eating great vegetables and having a good, strong, plant-based diet. Uh, he, he turned 100 recently. There's only about, sort of, I think, six or seven Kiwis that are 100. And when, he, when they asked him about how come he'd had such a long, enduring life, he put it down to um, his grandmother and mother growing their own fruits and vegetables and being incredibly, uh, I guess, sort of fastidious and diligent in the growing of fruits and vegetables. So what do you think? Homegrown food, is it overrated or do you think it's got really no, good health it impacts? No, it is certainly not overrated. Um, if everybody could, you know, afford a quarter-acre patch of land, um, grow, have a veggie patch and have a few fruit, tr- fruit trees, I would certainly say that our diets and our health would be exponentially better than they are today. Uh, the issue, the issue is that is, is a couple of things. Is One, he's 100 um, the food, the soil, the foil, the soil in which the food was grown in back then was, you know, a, a much more new, a new mineral rich than it is in New Zealand today. My, my 100, she'll be 100, my grandmother's 100, she'll be 101 soon. And she used to, she had a very vegetable rich diet and she would actually, all the, all of the water that she boiled her vegetables in, she'd pour off and use in soups or drink the next day. And mm. I'm sure that that had a huge impact on her longevity and her long lifespan. Mm. Um, but New Zealand's soils today are, are wildly deficient in selenium, zinc, boron, iodine, um, and chromium. And so you'd still have to make sure if you're growing your veggies yourself that, that the soils that you're doing so in are, you, you know, mineral, mineral nutrient rich. Nutrient yeah. rich. But yeah. I, I certainly say you're not going to be, there's going to be no pesticides. It's going to be largely at least um, spray-free organic. Uh, there are certainly only benefits of growing your own food. We just largely don't have the time today. A lot of the younger generational parents these days probably wouldn't even know how to grow a vegetable. So a lot of that knowledge has been lost. So some of that would have to be, you know, there'd be a re-education process there. But God, I mean, if we could all do that, that would be something that that would be a little dream of mine mm. if we could all do that. In mm. fact, I next place I live in, I certainly want to have space for a huge veggie patch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I agree. Uh, do you think there should be a synthetic fertilizer tax? Um, because you mentioned this organic, and well, we know that there's a lot of synthetic food. It depends. Synthetic fertilizers ha- do have a role to play. Um. It really just depends on, I don't think you should tax consumers for growing that in their own gardens. That would be a bit of a... No, I was thinking more on a on a growing scale, I think, you know, growers and farmers. Uh, I guess you need to look at taxes in the context of where are the alternatives. And if there are alternatives and what are the unintended consequences of putting on taxes like that? Is it going to be that they can't afford to buy organic fertilisers? Is it that... They decide there's no fertilizers put on, and then their whole crops get inundated yeah. with pests and all sorts. So there needs to be a, a, a huge um, framework around anything that gets put in place that facilitates um, mm. farmers um, on their journey on that. And it- or a realistic, a realistic one at least. Yeah, totally. Uh, just just moving now to sort of um, mind consciousness, um, because I know that one of the things that you sort of are quite passionate about is mind consciousness. So how would you define this? And this is something we talk about quite a bit on the At Source podcast. So I was just interested in your take on it. Uh, look, it's quite interesting because I work in food tech, but 
you know, I spent 20 years doing, over 20 years doing yoga and a lot, a large part of that teaching yoga. And, and so I have a bit of a dichotomy of exploring the inner, inner realms mm. of the, of the mind. And, um, and then these really kind of invasive technologies that, mm. that don't appear to be highly natural. Um, so, but you know, when I look at consciousness, it's my, my, if you look at consciousness versus mind consciousness, it's this sort of underlying life force that binds us all. Um, we humans are so somewhat ignorant to think that we have control over anything. Uh, the world spins, uh, the, ch- the seasons change, the tides go mm. in and out, the moon changes, and, um, and cl- flowers close and open every night, and we continue to, our hearts continue to beat. And so there's this underlying force of life consciousness which binds everything, plants, animals, the world as a whole, um, maybe the universe as a whole. And I think, um, you know, really tapping into that enables us to think actually how, how are we um, as an individual really interconnected to the world as a whole and, and you know, and, and we, we do count in what we do and we may be a branch office of something bigger, but um, everything everyone does impacts in a ripple effect to, to what everyone else does and to be mindful of that and also to sort of understand that underlying source energy that sort of courses through us all is quite important. It also keeps you humble. Like I think, mm. I think of some um, more of those aggressive, say, less mindful leaders that are showing their, you know, flexing their muscles at the moment um, on the global stage sort of had a bit of an understanding more of of the intricate, delicate nature of, of how the world works. Maybe maybe there would be a bit more um, uh, softer approach to how, how, you know, things are done in the world. And I think with knowing, you know, with mind consciousness in, in mind, you do take a softer, more... Uh, I don't think communism, I don't think communism entertains those nuances that you're making reference to. <laughs> no, it certainly doesn't. And look, I don't want to turn this into a political a political um, podcast or anything, but it's certainly, but if you sort of have a deep sense or uh, intrigue into mind consciousness, it certainly makes you a more mindful person um, and respectful of others and their ways of being. Yeah. And that that could, you know, from a food perspective, that could come um, ripple all the way down to how we grow our food, the respect for the food system, animals, plants, the environment. Yeah. That's that's right. Um, and, and in terms of neuroscience and its relation to food, and again, we go back to that TED Talk of yours where, you know, you do speak to how our brains impact appetite. So, I mean, this is, this is a caveman kind of, this is, you know, Libby Weaver, Dr. Libby Weaver, on my podcast with her just before Christmas last year, really kind of encapsulated very nicely the difference between the old brain and the new brain. And, uh, you know, how the old brain operates, which is sort of impulsive and sort of, in, you know, up, whatever's sort of up front. And then the new brain is this sort of level of consciousness where we reteach ourselves that, you know, some of the nuances that we might experience, actually you self-check those. So I guess where I'm going to with this is, do you think that the hunter-gatherer and the food chain and the way that we are geared towards food uh, there's sort of an old sort of consciousness, and then there's this evolving new one. Mm. It's yeah, no, and and it is. It's it's kind of like um, a young a young 
child having a tantrum, you know, yeah. you know, the, the old the old brain that's hungry and, and wants something, trying to guide the wise old man. And, um, uh, you know, I think the two can be calibrated. Um, I think, I think when we look at sort of the effect of brain on appetite, I'd probably look at it in a larger context of the effect of brain or the effect of foods on the mind as a whole. And then, and then the flow on effects that say may have an appetite or may have on other, other, um, impacts of the body. For example, when you eat certain food, ones that are rich in tryptophan, tryptophan, which is an essential amino acid, um, mm. They actually help the brain to release serotonin, which is really important for mood regulation, yes. sleep, and yes. a lot of those foods are sort of found in lots of animal sources, lots of, sort of seeds, sesame seeds, pumpkin seeds, all of that, mm. but also sort of things like spirulina. And, you know, if we, if we have balancing foods like that in our diet, then they'll regulate all sorts of other mental and cognitive functions in the body, which in turn will help impact on the microbiome and, um, on, and our appetites. And same with... Yes. Yeah. So I think you need to yes. look at it as... What, how does that food impact the brain, um, particularly micronutrients on the brain? And gut health, and there's a connection to microbiome yeah, gut health. Yeah, the gut brain axis. And, yes. Yeah, because if that, yeah. that's all healthy and, and, you know, and functioning well, the appetite is going to be fairly regulated. And mm. then the, the rational brain could probably over, override the kind of the limbic impulses. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's right. Yes, it's interesting you raised tryptophan. It's something that we've been discussing in uh, bee pollen and just that it's it's present but missing out of a lot of our Western daily diets and very difficult to actually, you know, harness that, if you like, within the diet um, and just talking about the benefits in, in relation to sleep and mood disorders. So, you know, nutrition is, is, well, they say sleep is king and nutrition is queen, but nutrition would be a very close second to sleep, right? That's not equal, um, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, great. And then, and, and then in terms of um, hormones, obviously we know that, you know, meat is pumped full of hormone um, and we, we talk about antibiotics in meat and just just the, the sort of the devastating effects of, of that exposure, if you like, to antibiotics over a long period of time and how it lowers our resistance potentially, which would be a plus for, I guess, clean, you know, lab-based uh, meat. But what do you think about hormones and additives and um, the antibiotics? It's a two-part two question, I guess, with the antibiotics and look, meat I think too. any additives in food are, are going to be a certainly not an additive for the human health, um, mm. unless it's a, you know, a well, a safe supplement, um, mineral additive. Um, but I don't think um, hormones or antibiotics or any of those kind of additives to food um, do anything um to enhance our health. Um, in fact, yeah. a lot of them are, you know, somewhat carcinogenic and um, are, are terrible. So the more food producers, particularly New Zealand producers, can move towards adding anything um, like that to our foods or in the food production process, the better. Um, and I think it's difficult, you you know, again, but it's back to that premium part versus your, your shitty processed meats yes. the argument. Um, what what you might find in a crappy processed sausage that you buy, uh, you know, 10 pack for two bucks is going to be full of all those sort of nasties that you wouldn't particularly find in maybe a really beautiful cut of New Zealand lamb or beef or whatever. So we do have to kind of just maybe make better food choices and that's quite hard in the current climate where food prices are, you know, increasing by the day. Uh, True. 
But, um, but you know, I guess education is the first part and eating better quality, mm. less amounts of better quality meat is certainly mm. the better option than eating heaps of meat and it's just, you know, a bad shit. <laughs> you know. Yeah, and I, and I think I know that, was um, it beef and NAM NZ, that's something that, you know, from a marketing position they've, you know, I guess embraced is eat less but eat better and just teaching consumers that, you know, um, stretching occasion for use too. So sort of, you know, using it the next day, using it in your kids' sandwiches or just kind of repurposing, I suppose, or repositioning the value of meat and getting consumers educated around what, like you say, a good piece looks like versus a crap piece. Um, we, we know that um, biodiversity is diminishing and that a, a, a diverse diet of different colours, seasonal produce is really, you know, critical. What particular diet or culture trend do you think is the most harmful? Because as you pointed out, there's a heaps out there, right? And um, people that would sort of celebrate one way of eating, um, either for weight loss or better health. Do you think there's one that's particularly problematic? I think the most harmful diet um, would be obviously a highly processed diet. You want to eat foods that are close to the original source as possible. Um, if you're going to be eating sugary foods, bake them yourself. You know what's going into them. There's no additives in them. But mainly whole foods, um, meat, um, tons and tons of greens and leafy greens, fruit, um, mm. nuts. Um, if you're eating a highly processed diet, sugary foods, especially sort of say a processed sugary diet, that is so in inflammatory for the body. Yes, um, yeah. That, you know, fats or new macronutrients or the lacking thereof sides, the inflam inflammatory effects of these processed and sugary foods are so bad for the brain and all the other, and the microbiome and every other part of your body. Uh, if you kind of knew the inflammation markers and what happened when you yeah. eat a piece of processed sugary food, you probably never want to put it in your mouth again. And look, again, back to your limbic brain kind of, Situation, I, you know, I know all this, and I still gouge back chocolate by I was just going to say, I was just going to say I'm that to you. Like, <laughs> and there'd be no alcoholics if that was the case. The, the level, exactly. the, the level of consciousness seems to be at an all-time low across humanity exactly. in general. So it's about keeping them out of the house, eating them on occasion, and and really staying away from highly processed foods, yeah. um, especially ones high in sugar or um and vegetable oils. I know people talk about how vegetable plant-based oils and vegetable oils are amazing. They're not. Um, olive oil is great. Hemp oil is great. Avocado. But if you're eating a whole lot of potato chips cooked in canola oil, canola, you're just, yeah. that's highly inflammatory. It's high omega-6 ratio to threes. And um, it is probably one of the worst oils that you could cook with um, if you want a balanced, um, sort of, and balance out your inflammation. So, um, yeah, you know, those conventional industrial oils, coffee oils and sugar, um, keep them away from your house. Yeah, mm. such great, such great advice. I do uh, do note that you've got a penchant for dark chocolate bliss balls. Well, <laughs> I did. I I got to the point. I was. Did you have it. hypnotherapy? I just had to. That, I always had to. It was terrible. Like I was telling the Tom and Luke's crowd. Um, you oh, look yeah. at the recycling bin, and they were there was just block <laughs> tubs and tubs of them everywhere. I was like, this is a lot of money I'm spending on these bliss balls, and they're delicious and they're somewhat healthy, but they're still high in sugar. I was like, then I started to think, oh, well, I'll just make them. So I started to make them and then I stopped even rolling them into balls and I was just eating them out of the tub. And I was like, this the is dough. it, you've got to stop. Yeah, got to yeah, and yeah. then I just got, I yeah. hit a wall where I, like, I sort of 
got a bit too over them because I just overdone them for years. So yeah. I still look, I've still got blissables at home, but I'm I'm a bit more refrained. It's pretty much the dark chocolate really at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Well you've obviously got a sweet tooth, but you're into making your own sort of raw treats and goodies and some of your recipes looked pretty amazing actually. I, I did read an article about the day in the life of Oh yeah. And it looked like some sweet treats took up a big part of your day and of of your psyche. Um, so in terms of this year, because, I mean, this year's already been quite challenging, hasn't it, for, yeah, for all of us? Yeah, it has been. It, it's, um, it's, feel, it's like yeah. it's gone fast, but it also feels like, shit, so much has changed and a lot of, a lot of yeah. hard stuff already. Yeah. Yeah, we've come out of, you know, we're sort of trying to come out of a pandemic um, and then we sort of get hit with, well, there's a version two, or there's a, B, a B2 or there's, there's war raging in Europe. So I think this year has been challenging, but just given that, you know, what are, what are some of the things you're looking forward to the most this year? What are, what are your plans? Oh, look, I I really am excited to continue to sort of help New Zealand's food sector um, move towards some really exciting new options um, and ha- how we can as a sector create some new options for us that are based around health, wellness um, and have a real longevity focus. But, you know, at a personal level, I really... I'm really excited about food and the impact on women's health. Or um, and so I'll be doing a lot more of my own research on food for women's hormonal health um, and sort of the micronutrient, macronutrient sort of um, ways uh, ways with the, with micro and macronutrients that we can help balance our hormones, manage uh, perimenopause, hor- mm, uh, PMS, um, menopause, all that kind of stuff, pregnancy. Um, but also, I'm really excited this year just to sort of take a deeper dive, which I've been doing lately, into how bioactors or bioactors inside food or certain food groups can really help, um, as we were talking to earlier, develop new food solutions that target need states. So much more personalised mm-hmm. offerings for foods sort of targeted to the consumer's needs. And that could be around longevity. It could be around hormonal health, inflammation. It could be around moods, you know, yes, anything yeah. like that, or metabolic health or weight, um, sleep. And there's so many ways that food can help in all of those sort of verticals. And I'm gonna I'm really taking a deeper dive into sort of that need state space and how particularly New Zealand bioactives and foods um can can really play into those markets. Mm, very interesting. And of course we know that the way the future is going to be more around tailoring for consumers. So I think you're onto something there. Um, we're seeing that, we're seeing that, we're seeing that, you know, whether it's through retail, the retail experience or through tech, um, even even in fashion too. So I think um, that's going to be a really interesting um, sort of project for you. And I think it's probably going to be a long project too. Just as going <laughs> to, it's a big, it's a big piece of work, right? Like exciting and rewarding mm. as well. So, and I'm, I'm quite mm. happy to use myself as a test dummy on some of this. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just been uh, honestly a fantastic chat, quite pithy with some really good um, topics, I think, that we've sort of chewed through together, no pun intended. Um, and I, I'm sure that our listeners have learned a lot. And like I said at the beginning, it's, it is a very overwhelming um, kind of debate, some of the things that you're sort of touching on. Um, and I, I'm not sure... I think there's like, you know, I don't know what, you know, what percentage of the world's are conscious consumers, you know, whether they are, you know, a very small minority if we think about it in its global sphere and that why this work feels so hard and it's such a long journey 
is because it's not a collective consciousness yet. Not yet. Some of the things not that yet. you're doing. Yeah, but it will, it will become one. Um, and of mm. course, um, of course, things like yeah. pandemics or war, um, wars, war? and conflict mm. will totally derail one's progress in that space where your basic Maslow's basic hierarchy of needs is safety yeah. and shelter. Sure. So go on, yes. you know, they don't give a, a toss about whether your food is going to be, you know, high in some sort of longevity uh, uh, molecule when they're worried about living the next day. So obviously um, it will it will be met with ebbs and flows, but certainly over time you'll see this gradual shift towards more mm. uh, mindfulness in that space. Mm. Mm. Well, I, I, I do love your optimism, you know. I, I, I agree with you. I think it's just a really must feel like a really big journey. Yeah, it is. Um, but you, you do seem to carry a lot of optimism around around change. And I think I'm sure that just must stay with you and give you the the energy to get up and keep, keep doing the work. Well, thank you. Yeah, well, look, humans, yeah. humans have only ever but changed. So to think that we're going to stop changing now mm. would be somewhat naive for New Zealand. Mm. And so, you That's know, right. the constant is change. That's right. Well, thanks very much, oh, Rosie. It's been uh, really great to reconnect yeah, with you. I mean, and thanks so much for the time. And no, I, hope, I hope to do another one of these with you uh, going forward. Yeah, uh, later no, no the problem. I look forward yeah. to it. Lovely. Okay, thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in and joining our conversation and stay tuned for more episodes. Please rate, review and subscribe. Check out the show notes if you'd like to contact this episode's interviewee. At Source Podcast does not accept any liability for the results of any actions taken or not taken upon the basis of information in this podcast or for any errors or omissions. Those acting upon information do so entirely at their own risk. We recommend that you seek professional assistance from certified doctors for your health and well-being issues.